Welcome to Mama Libala's Story Hour. April Fool's Edition. It's a tradition. survey physicians and researchers across the globe to assess various medical risks and best practices for flattening the curve. Then they ignore all logical advice and attempt to destroy their home countries as quickly as possible. All-inclusive battleship. Every ship is a cruise ship with an open-air buffet and only four serving spans. Hungry, hungry hoarders. Players attempt to grab as much toilet paper as possible in 60-second intervals. Then the losers judge the winners for their callous selfishness while buying up all the pasta. Delivery Monopoly. Players compete to see who can set up the most Amazon warehouses in the neighborhood. Chance cards tell you whether your dried garbanzo beans and low-sodium progressive soups are still in stock. Stock Market Jenga. Players carefully tap various industries out of the economic chain, hoping that they don't remove a link that sends the Dow crashing down. Shoots and Ladders Spring Break Edition. Team Game. One team diligently climbs the flattened curve ladder. The other insists on getting drunk and engaging in sloppy Fort Lauderdale orgies, determined to slide everyone back into crisis mode. But I really need this operation. This game's actually impossible to play because in addition to the regular missing organs, there are now no masks, gloves, or hospital rooms left. The game of quarantined life. Landmark events include getting an online degree, canceling your wedding, and saying, fuck these streaming yoga classes before eating a dozen Toll House cookies while watching The Real Housewives of New Jersey. Solitaire. No adjustment required. What Shakespeare Did During the Plague by Daniel Pollock Pelsner Day 1. Quills lined up, nibs sharp, parchment ready. No death nails get this morning. You're going to write to King Lear. Day 2. No pressure. Fine to spend the first day brainstorming. There's no such thing as a bad idea. Nibs still sharp. You can do this. Day 3. You know what was a great play? Julius Caesar. Rereading it. How many ages hence? Shall this our lofty scene be acted over in states unborn and accents yet unknown? Damn. Day four. First draft doesn't have to be perfect. The scribe will always go over it later. Shoot for a sloppy copy. Day five. Actus primus. Sciana prima. Or is it Actus primus Sciana primus? Day six. And Johnson must have written like six plays by now. Day seven. No competition. You do you. Who wrote Titus Andronicus, bitch? Day eight. Are those plague sores? Mm, they're kind of reddish. 
Day 9. They're definitely plague sores. Day 10. Does rubbing your body with a chicken actually work? Day 11. They're not plague sores. Back to the old quillin parchment. Day 12. Shopping nibs. Day 13. Been wearing the same doublette and hose for two weeks. Day 14. The muse strikes. If Cordelia and the Fool never appear in the same scene, that new apprentice can play both of them. Save one actor's wages. Times six performances. Optimistic, but why not? For a total of 30 pence, can you say new doublet and hose? Day 15. I miss Babash. Day 16. No approach. Fasting between meals clears the mind. Day 17. Feeling peckish. Day 18. Hard to focus with all the death nails tolling. Day 19. Trying to work in some witches. King James likes witches. Maybe Leah's eldest daughter turns out to be a witch or Edgar and Edmund are twins and one of them's a witch and cross dresses as Cordelia is actually the fool. If you sort out the entrances, that apprentice could play all four parts. Day 20. Actus Primus Siana Prima. Just keep the grill moving. Actus Primus Siana Prima. Actus Primus Siana Prima. Actus Primus Siana Prima. Actus Primus Siana Prima. Day 21. It's hard to write a good A-E thing. Day 22, need new nibs. A23, stop the internal tolling. Get it already. Day 24, as flies to wanton boys are we to the gods. They kill us for their sport. Damn. Day 25, definitely too dark. Keep the mood light. No one wants a tragedy after a plague. Day 26. Johnson's probably writing a comedy. Day 27. So what if you didn't go to university? Day 28. You're the king's men, say it. King's men, king's men rule. Day 29. King James is going to serve your head on a platter if you don't write this godforsaken play today. Day 30. You know what selfish writing play while people are literally dying. Day 31. You could have been an apothecary and actually helped people. Day 32. You're a worthless piece of plague-infected excrement. Day 33. You know what makes you even more worthless? Having the resources to spend your day writing a play where other people are dying and then not writing it. Day 34. Just take it one day at a time. Day 35. You know, was it easy? Anne and Susanna, back at Stratford. They don't have to write anything. Day 36. New idea. Rightful Duke of Milan. Usurped by a younger brother. Cast out to sea with infant daughter to drown. Shipwrecked on magical island. Harnesses spirits of earth and air. Summons tempests to wreak vengeance on brother. Show off globes new metal thunder sheets. Day 37. Stupid idea. Day 38. Quarantine almost over. Granta. 40. Trenta. 30. Venti. 20. This would be a great time to learn Italian. Day 39. The weight of this 
sad time we must array. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. The oldest hath borne most. We that are young shall never see so much, nor live so long. Day 40. Damn. Total Eclipse by Annie Dillard. It had been like dying, that sliding down the mountain pass. It had been like the death of someone, irrational, that sliding down the mountain pass and into the region of dread. It was like slipping into fever or falling down that hole in sleep from which you waked yourself whimpering. We'd crossed the mountain that day and now we were in a strange place, a hotel in central Washington in a town near Yakima. The eclipse we'd traveled here to see would occur early in the next morning. I lay in bed. My husband Gary was reading beside me. I lay in bed and looked at the painting on the hotel wall room. It was a, a print of a detailed and lifelike painting of a smiling clown's head made out of vegetables. It was a painting of the sort which you do not intend to look at and which, alas, you never forget. Some tasteless fate presses it upon you. It becomes part of the complex interior junk you carry with you wherever you go. Two years have passed since the total eclipse of which I write. During those years, I have forgotten, I assume, a great many things I wanted to remember. But I've not forgotten that clown painting or its lunatic setting in the old hotel. The clown was bald. Actually, he wore a clown's tight rubber wig, painted white. This stretches over the top of his skull, which was a cabbage. His hair was bunches of baby carrots, inset in his white clown makeup, and in his cabbage skull were his small and laughing human eyes. The clown's glance was like the glance of a Rembrandt in some of his self-portraits, lively, knowing, deep, and loving. The crinkled shadows around his eyes were string beans. His eyebrows were parsley. Each of his ears was a broad bean. His thin, joyful lips were red chili peppers. Between those were sets of human-like teeth and a suggestion of a real tongue. The clown print was framed in gilt and glass put ourselves in the path of the total eclipse. That day we'd driven five hours inland from the Washington coast where we lived. When we tried to cross the Cascades Range, an avalanche had blocked the pass. A slope's worth of snow blocked the road. Traffic backed up. Had the avalanche buried any cars that morning? We couldn't learn. This highway was the only winter road over the mountains. We waited as highway crews bulldozed a passage through the avalanche. With two-by-fours and walls of plywood, they erected a one-way roof tunnel through the avalanche. We drove through the avalanche tunnel, crossed the pass, and descended several thousand feet into central Washington in the broad Yakima Valley, about which we only knew that it was orchard country. As we lost altitude, the snow disappeared, our ears popped, the trees changed, 
and in the trees were strange birds. I watched the landscape innocently like a fool, like a diver in the rapture of the deep who plays on the bottom while his air runs out. The hotel lobby was a dark, derelict room, narrow as a corridor, and seemingly without air. We waited on a couch while the manager vanished upstairs to do something unknown to our room. Besides us, on an overstuffed chair, absolutely motionless, was a platinum blonde woman in her forties, wearing a black silk dress and a strand of pearls. Her long legs were crossed. She supported her head on her fist. At the dim far end of the room, their backs toward us, sat six bald old men in their shirt sleeves around a loud television. Two of them seemed asleep. They were drunks. Number six, cried the man on television. Number six. On the broad lobby desk, lidded and bubbling, was a ten-gallon aquarium containing one large fish. The fish tilted up and down in its water. Again, the long opposite wall sang a live canary in its cage. Beneath the cage, amongst spilled millet seeds on the carpet, was a decorated child's sand bucket and a matching sand shovel. Now the alarm was set for six. I lay awake remembering an article I'd read downstairs in the lobby in an engineering magazine. The article was about gold mining. In South Africa, in India, and in South Dakota, the gold mines extend so deeply into the Earth's crust that they're hot. The rock walls burn the miners' hands. The companies have to air condition the mines. If the air conditioners break, the miners die. The elevators in the mine shafts run very slowly, down and up, so the miners' ears will not pop in their skulls. When the miners return to the surface, their faces are deathly pale. Early the next morning, we checked out. It was February 26, 1979, a Monday morning. We would drive out of town, find a hilltop, watch the eclipse, then drive back over the mountains and home to the coast. How familiar things are here, how adept we are, how smoothly and professionally we check out. I'd forgotten the clown's smiling head and the hotel lobby as if it never existed. Gary put the car in gear and off we went, as off we'd gone a hundred other adventures. It was dawn when we found a highway out of town and drove into the unfamiliar countryside. By the growing light, we could see a band of cirrostratus clouds in the sky. Later, the rising sun would clear these clouds before the eclipse began. We drove at random until we came to a range of unfenced hills, pulled off the highway, bundled up, and climbed one of these hills. The hill was 500 feet high. Long winter killed grass covered it as high as our knees. We climbed and rested, sweating in the cold. We passed clumps of bundled people on the hillside who were setting up telescopes and fiddling with cameras. The top of the hill stuck up in the middle of the sky. We tightened our scarves and looked around. East of us rose another hill like ours, between the hill, far below. Thirteen was the highway which threaded south in the valley. This was the Yakima Valley. I'd never seen it before. It was justly famous for its beauty, like every planted valley. It extended south into the horizon, a distant dream of a valley, a Shangri-La. All its hundreds of low, golden slopes bore orchards. Among the orchards were towns and roads and plowed and fallow fields. Through the valley wandered a thin, shining river. From the river extended fine, frozen irrigation ditches. Distance blurred and blued the sight so that the whole valley looked like a thickness or a sediment at the bottom of the sky. Directly behind us was more sky and empty lowlands blued by distance in Mount Adams. Mount Adams was an enormous snow-covered volcanic cone rising flat, like so much scenery. Now the sun was up, 
We could not see it, but the sun behind the band of clouds was yellow, and far down the valley, some hillside orchards had lit it up. More people were parking near the highway and climbing the hills. It was the west. All of us rugged individualists were wearing knit caps and blue nylon parkas. People were climbing the nearby hills and setting up shop in clumps along the dead grasses. It looked as though we had all gathered on hilltops to pray for the world on its last day. It looked as though we had all crawled out of spaceships and were preparing to assault the valley below. It looked as though we were scattered on hilltops at dawn to sacrifice virgins, to make rain, to set stone stelae in a ring. There's no place out of the wind. The straw grasses banged our legs. Up in the sky where we stood, the air was lustrous yellow. To the west, the sky was blue. Now the sun cleared the clouds. We cast rough shadows on the blowing grass. Freezing, we waved our arms. Near the sun, the sky was bright and colorless. There was nothing to see. Piece of the sun went away. We looked at it through welder's goggles. Piece of the sun was missing, and in its place we saw empty sky. I'd seen a partial eclipse in 1970. A partial eclipse is very interesting. It bears almost no relation to a total one. Seeing a partial eclipse bears the same relation to seeing a total eclipse as kissing a man does to marrying him, or as flying in an airplane does to falling out of one. Although the one experience precedes the other, it in no way prepares you for it. During a partial eclipse, the sky does not darken, not even with the 94% of the sun being hidden, nor does the sun, seen colorless through protective devices, seem terribly strange. It began with no ado. It was odd that such a well-advertised public event should have no starting gun, no overture, no introductory speaker. I should have known right then that I was out of my depth. Without pause or preamble, silent as orbits, it's far behind the sun. The sun simply shaves away gradually. You see less sun and more sky. The sky's blue was deepening, but there was no darkness. The sun was a wide crescent like a segment of tangerine. The wind freshened and blew steadily over the hill. The eastern hill across the highway grew dusky and sharp. We've all seen a sliver of light in the sky. We've all seen the crescent moon by day. However, during a partial eclipse, the air does indeed get cold, precisely as if someone were standing between you and the fire. And blackbirds do fly back to their roosts. I'd seen a partial eclipse before, and here was another. When you see an eclipse, it is entirely different from what you know. It's especially different for those of us whose grasp of astronomy is so frail that, given a flashlight, a grapefruit, two oranges in 15 years, we still could not figure out which way to set the clocks for daylight savings time. Usually it's a bit of a trick to keep your knowledge from blinding you, but during an eclipse it's easy. What you see is much more convincing than any wild-eyed theory you may know. You may read that the moon has something to do with eclipses. I've never seen the moon yet. You do not see the moon. So near the sun, it's completely invisible and the stars are by day. What you see before your eyes is the sun going through phases. It gets narrower and narrower, as the waning moon does, and like ordinary moons, it travels alone in the simple sky. The sun is, of course, background. It does not appear to eat the sun. I was standing in it, by some mistake. I was standing in a movie of hillside grasses filmed in the Middle Ages. I missed my own century, the people I knew, and the real light of day. I looked at Gary. He was in the film. Everything was lost. He was a platinum print, a dead artist's version of life. I saw in his skull the darkness of night mixed with the colors of day. My mind was going out. My eyes were receding the way galaxies recede to the rim of space. 
Gary was light years away, gesturing inside a circle of darkness, down the wrong ends of a telescope. The towns and orchard to the south were dissolving into the blue light. Only the thin river held a trickle of sun. Now the sky to the west deepened to indigo, a color never seen. A dark sky usually loses color. This was a saturated, deep indigo up in the air. Stuck up to the unworldly sky was the cone of Mount Adams, and the alpine glow was upon it. The alpine glow is that red light of sunset which holds out on snowy mountaintops long after the valleys and tablelands are dimmed. Look at Mount Adams, I said, and that was the last sane moment I remember. I turned back to the sun. It was going. The sun was going, and the world was wrong. The grasses were wrong. They were platinum. Their every detail of stem, head, and blade shone lightless and artificially distinct as an art photograph's platinum print. This color has never been seen on earth. The hues were metallic. Their finish was matte. The hillside was a 19th century tinted photograph from which the tints had faded. All the people you see in the photograph, distinct and detailed as their faces look, are now dead. The sky was navy blue. My hands were silver. All the distant hills and grasses were fine-spun metal which the wind laid down. It was watching a faded color print of a movie filmed in the Middle Ages. He smiled as if he saw me. The stringing crinkles around his eyes moved. The sight of him, familiar and wrong, was something I was remembering from centuries hence, from the other side of death. Yes, that's the way he looked, when we were living. When it was our generation's turn to be alive. I could not hear him. The wind was too loud. Behind him, the sun was going. We'd all started down the chute of time. At first, it was pleasant. Now there was no stopping it. Gary was shooting across space, moving and talking and catching my eye, shooting down the long corridor of separation. The skin on his face moved like thin bronze plating that would not peel. The grass at our feet was wild barley. It was wild einkorn wheat which grew at the hilly flanks of the Zargos Mountains above the Euphrates Valley. Above the valley of the river we called river. We harvested the grass with stone sickles, I remember. We found the grasses on the hillsides. We built our shelter behind them and we cut them down. That's how we used to look then, that one moving and living and catching my eye, with the sky so dark behind him and the wind blowing. God save our lives. From the hills came screams. A piece of sky beside this crescent sun was detaching. It was a loosened circle of evening sky, suddenly lit by the back. It was an abrupt black body out of nowhere. It was a flat disk. It was almost over the sun. That is when there were screams. And once the disk of sky slid over the sun like a lid, the sky snapped over the sun like a lens cover. The hatch in the brain slammed. Abruptly, it was dark night on the land and in the sky. In the night sky was a thin ring of light. The hole where the sun belongs is very small. A thin ring of light marks its place. There was no sound. The eyes dried, the arteries drained, the lungs hushed. There was no world. We were the world's dead people, rotating and orbiting around and around, embedded in the planet's crust while the earth rolled down. Our minds were light years distance, forgetful of almost everything. Only an extraordinary act of will could recall us to our former living selves in our context and matter of time. We had, it seemed, loved the planet and loved our lives, but we could no longer remember the way of them. We'd got the wrong light. In the sky was something that should not be there. In the black sky was a ring of light. It was a thin ring, an old, thin, silver wedding band. An old, worn ring. It was an old wedding band in the sky where a morsel of bone. There were stars. It was over.
It is now that the temptation is strongest to leave these regions. We've seen enough, let's go. Why burn our hands any more than we have to? But two years have passed, the price of gold has risen. I return to the same buried alluvial beds and pick through the strata again. I saw early in the morning the sun diminish against a backdrop of sky. I saw a circular piece of sky that appeared, suddenly detached, blackened and backlit. From nowhere it came and overlapped the sun. It did not look like the moon. It was enormous and black. If I had not read that it was the moon, I could have seen the sight a hundred times and never thought of the moon once. If, however, I had not read that it was the moon, if, like most people around the world throughout time had simply glanced up and seen this thing, then I doubtless would not have speculated much, but would have, like Emperor Luis of Bavaria in 840, simply died of fright on the spot. It did not look like a dragon, although it looked more like a dragon than the moon. It looked like a lens cover, or the lid of a pot, materialized out of thin air, black and flat and sliding, outlined in flame. Seeing this black body was like seeing a mushroom cloud. The heart screeched. The meaning of the sight overwhelmed its fascination. It obliterated meaning itself. If you were to glance out one day and see a row of mushroom clouds rising on the horizon, you would know at once what you were seeing. Remarkable as it was, was intrinsically not worth remarking. No use running to tell anyone. Significant as it was, it did not matter a whit, for what is significance? It is significance for people. No people, no significance. That's all I have to tell you. In the depths are the violence and terror of which psychology has warned us. But if you ride these monsters deeper down, if you drop with them farther over the world's rim, you find that our sciences cannot locate or name the substrate, the ocean, the matrix, or ether which buoys the rest, which gives goodness its power for good and evil. Its power for evil, the unified field, our complex and inexplicable caring for each other and for our life together here. This is given, it is not learned. The world which lay under darkness and stillness following the closing of the lid was not the world we know. The event was over, its devastation lay around us, the clamoring mind and heart stilled, almost indifferent, certainly disembodied, frail and exhausted. The hills were hushed, obliterated. Up in the sky like a crater from some distant cataclysm was a hollow ring. You've seen photographs of the sun taken during a total eclipse. The corona fills the print. All these photographs were taken through telescopes. The lenses of telescopes and cameras can no more cover the breadth and scale of the visual array than language can cover the breadth and simultaneity of internal experience. Lenses enlarge the sight, omit its context, and make of it a pretty insensible picture, like something on a Christmas card. But I assure you, if you send any shepherd a Christmas card on which is printed a three-by-three photograph of an angel of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, and a multitude of heavenly hosts, they will not be sore afraid. More fearsome things can come in envelopes. More moving photographs than those of the sun's corona can appear in magazines. But I'll pray that you never see anything more awful in the sky. You see the wide world swaddled in darkness. You see a vast breadth of hilly land. You see an enormous, distant, blackened valley, town's lights, a river's path, blurred portions of your hat and scarf. You see your husband's face looking like an early black and white film, and you see a sprawl of black sky and blue sky together with unfamiliar stars in it, some barely visible of cloud, and over there a small white ring. The ring is small as one goose in a flock of migrating geese, 
if you happen to notice a flock of migrating geese. It is one 360th part of the visible sky. The sun we see is less than half the diameter of a dime held at arm's length. The Crab Nebula in the constellation Taurus looks through binoculars like a smoke ring. It's a star in the process of exploding. Light from the explosion first reached Earth in 1054. It was a supernova then, and so bright it shone in the daytime. Now it's not so bright, but still exploding. It expands at the rate of 70 million miles a day. It's interesting to look through binoculars at something expanding 70 million miles a day. It does not budge. Its apparent size does not increase. Photographs of the Crab Nebula taken 15 years ago seem identical to photographs of it taken yesterday. Some lichens are similar. Botanists have measured some ordinary lichens twice, at 50-year intervals without detecting any growth at all. And yet their cells divide. They live. The small ring of light was like these things, like a ridiculous lichen up in the sky, like a perfectly still explosion 4,200 light years away. It was interesting and lovely and in witless motion, and it had nothing to do with anything. It had nothing to do with anything. The sun was too small and too cold and too far away to keep the world alive. The white ring was not enough. It was feeble and worthless. Worthless and useless as a memory. It was an off-kilter and hollow and wretched memory. When you try your hardest to recall someone's face or the look of a place, and you see in your mind's eye some vague and terrible sight such as this, it is dark, it is insubstantial, it is all wrong. The white ring in the saturated darkness made the earth and the sky look as they must look in memories of the careless dead. What I saw, what I seemed to be standing in, was all the wrecked light and the memories of the dead could shed upon the living world. We had all died in our boots on the hilltops of Yakima and were alone in eternity. Empty space stoppered our eyes and mouths, we cared for nothing. We remembered our living days wrong. With great effort, we'd remembered some sort of circular light in the sky, but only the outline. Oh, and then the orchard trees withered. The ground froze. The glaciers slid down the valley and overlapped the towns. There had been people on earth. Nobody knew it. The dead had forgotten those that they had loved. The dead were parted from the other and could no longer remember the faces and lands that they loved in the light. They seemed to stand on darkened hilltops, looking down. teach our kids one thing only. As we were taught, to wake up. We teach our children to look alive there, to join by words and activities the life of human culture on the planet's crust. As adults, we're almost all adept at waking up. We've so mastered the transition, we've forgotten we ever learned it. Yet it's a transition that we make a hundred times a day. As like so many willless dolphins, we plunge and surface, lapse and emerge. We live half our waking lives and all of our sleeping lives in some private, useless, and insensible waters we never mention or recall. Useless, I say. Valueless, I might add. Until someone hauls their wealth up to the surface and into the wide-awake city in a form that people can use. I do not know how we got to the restaurant. Like Grobke, I take my waking slow. I gradually seem more or less alive and already forgetful. It was now almost nine in the morning. It was the day of a solar eclipse in central Washington and a fine adventure for everyone. The sky was clear. There was a fresh breeze out from the north. The restaurant was a roadside place with tables and booths. The other eclipse watchers were there. From our booth, we could see their cars, California license plates, 
their University of Washington parking stickers. Inside the restaurant, we were all eating eggs or waffles. People were fairly shouting and exchanging enthusiasms like fans after a World Series game. Did you see? Did you see? Then somebody said something which knocked me for a loop. A college student, a boy in a blue parka who carried a Hasselblad, said to us, Did you see that little white ring? It looked like a lifesaver. It looked like a lifesaver up in the sky. And so it did. The boy spoke well. He was a walking alarm clock. I myself had at no time access to such a word. He could write a sentence, and I could not. I grabbed that lifesaver and rode it to the surface, and I had to laugh. I had been dumbstruck on the Euphrates River. I'd been dead and gone and grieving all over the sight of something which, if you could claw your way up to that level, you would grant looked very much like a lifesaver. It was good to be back among people so clever. It was good to have the world's words at the mind's disposal so the mind could begin its task. All those things for which we have no words are lost. The mind, the culture, has two little tools, grammar and lexicon, a decorated sand bucket and a matching shovel. With these, we bluster about the continents and do the world's work. With these, we try to save our very lives. There are a few more things to tell from this level, the level of the restaurant. One is the old joke about breakfast. It can never be satisfied, the mind, never. Wallace Stevens wrote that, and in the long run, he was right. The mind wants to live forever, or to learn a very good reason why not. The mind wants the world to return its love or its awareness. The mind wants to know all the world and all eternity and God. The mind's sidekick, however, will settle for two eggs over easy. The deer's stupid body is easily satisfied as a spaniel, and incredibly, the simple spaniel can lure the brawling mind to its dish. It's everlastingly funny that the proud, metaphysically ambitious, clamoring mind will hush if you give it an egg. Further, while the mind reels in deep space, while the mind grieves or fears or exults, the workaday senses, in ignorance or idiocy, like so many computer terminals printing our market prices while the world blows up, still transcribe their little data and transmit them to the warehouse in the school. Later, under the tranquilizing influence of fried eggs, the mind can sort through this data. The restaurant's like a halfway house, a decompression chamber. There I remembered a few things more. The deepest and most terrifying was this. I've said that I heard screams. I've once read that screaming with hysteria is a common reaction even to be expected during total eclipses. People on all the hillsides, including, I think myself, screamed when the black body of the moon detached from the sky and rolled over the sun. But something else happened at that same moment, and it was this, I believe, which made us scream. The second before the sun went over, we saw a wall of dark shadow come speeding at us. We no sooner saw it than it was upon us like thunder. It roared up the valley. It slammed our hill to knock us down. It was the monstrous, swift shadow cone of the moon. I'd since read that this wave of shadow moves 1,800 miles an hour. Language can give no sense of this sort of speed. 1,800 miles an hour. It was 195 miles wide. No end in sight, and you saw only the edge. It rolled you across the land at 1,800 miles an hour, hauling darkness like plague behind it. Seeing it, knowing it was coming straight for you, was feeling a slug of anesthetic shoot up your arm. If you think very fast, and you might have time to think, soon it will hit my brain. You can feel the deadness race up your arm, and you can feel the appalling inhuman speed of your own blood. We saw that wall of shadow coming and screamed before it hit. This was the universe about which we had read so much and never before felt. 
the universe as a clockwork of loose spheres flung at stupefying, unauthorized speeds. How could anything moving so fast not crash, not veer from its orbit and muck like a car out of control on a turn? Less than two minutes later, when the sun emerged, the trailing edge of the shadow came speeding behind it. It coursed down our hill and raced eastward over the plain, faster than I could believe. It swept over the plain and dropped over the planet's rim in a twinkling. It clobbered us, and now it roared away. We blinked in the light. It was as though an enormous, loping god in the sky had reached down and slapped the earth's face. Something else, something more ordinary, came back to me, along with a third cup of coffee. During the moments of totality, it was so dark that drivers on the highway below turned on their car's headlights. We could see the highway route on a strand of lights, bumper to bumper down there. It was 8.15 in the morning, Monday morning, and people were driving into Yakima to work. That it was, as dark as night, and eerie as hell, an hour after dawn apparently meant that in order to see to drive, you people had to turn on their headlights. Four or five cars even pulled off the road. The rest, in a line at least five miles long, drove to town. The highway ran between hills. The people could not have seen any of the eclipse sun at all. Yakima will have another total eclipse in 2086. Perhaps in 2086, businesses will give their employees an hour off. From the restaurant, we drove back to the coast. The highway crossing the Cascades Range was finally open again. We drove over the mountain like old pros. We joined our places on the planet's thin crust, and it held. For the time being, we were home free. Early that morning at 6, when we had checked out, the six bald men were sitting on the folding chairs in the dim hotel lobby. Television was on. Most of them were awake. You might drown in your own spittle, God knows, at any time. You might wake up dead in a small hotel, a cabbage head watching TV, while snow piles up on the passes, watching TV while the chili peppers smile and the moon passes over the sun, and nothing changes and nothing is learned because you've lost your bucket and shovel and no longer care. What if you regain the surface and open your sack and find, instead of treasure, a beast which jumps at you? You may not come back at all. The winches may jam, the scaffolding buckle, the air conditioning collapse. You may glance up one day and see by your headlight the canary keeled over in its cage. You may reach into a cranny for pearls and touch a moray eel. You yank on your rope, but it's too late. Apparently, people share a sense of these hazards, for when the total eclipse ended, an odd thing happened. When the sun appeared as a blinding beam around the ring's side, the eclipse was over. The black lens cover appeared again, backlit, and slid away. At once, the yellow light made the sky blue again. The black lid dissolved and vanished. The real world began there. I remember now. We all hurried away. We were born and bored at a stroke. We rushed down the hill. We found our car. We saw the other people streaming down the hillsides. We joined the highway traffic, and we drove away. We never looked back. It was a general vamoose, and an odd one, for when we left the hill, the sun was still partially eclipsed, a sight rare enough, and one which, in itself, we would probably have driven five hours to see. But enough is enough. One turns at last, even from glory itself, with a sigh of relief. From the depths of mystery, and even from the height of splendor, we bounce back and hurry for the latitudes of home. Thank you.